Remain standing for our epistle lesson from Romans 8, which is also our gospel text. Listen attentively to God's word. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for this deep truth of Your Spirit's help, especially in prayer. We pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that we can see and put into practice what we learn from Your Word today. We ask this humbly and fervently in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. What are the two most perplexing subject matters for Christians? If I had to narrow it down to two, I would say the two most perplexing subjects are prayer and knowing the will of God. How am I supposed to pray? What am I supposed to pray for? How am I... How do I know God's will and how am I supposed to find out what it is? And of course, these two subjects are related, aren't they? Before you could know how to pray or what to pray, you need to know God's will. So you'll pray for the right things. But it works the other way as well. Before you can know God's will, you have to be in prayer about it. So these two perplexities come to us as a pair. And Paul puts them together here in our passage from Romans 8, verses 26 and 27. In verse 26, Paul says that the Spirit helps us to pray when we're too weak to know what to pray for. Which, in one sense, is all the time, right? Uh, Sometimes we're weaker than other times, but we always come to God in weakness, whether we recognize it or not. We'll talk about that later. Sometimes we're more confused, though, than other times. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, Paul says. So the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and He groans with us. Groans alongside us. He groans with us and He intercedes for us. That word intercede or intercession means praying for us, praying on our behalf to the Father. And then at the end of verse 27, Paul connects this idea with God's will, God's desires for history and humanity and our lives. Paul says that He, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So in these two verses, Paul joins up the two great perplexities of the Christian life. Prayer and God's will. Knowing 
how to pray or what to pray for, and knowing what the will of God is. Christians who want to pray in accordance with God's will find themselves asking questions like, what should I pray for? How should I pray? Can I pray with confidence? Can I claim certain things by faith? Or do I have to make all my prayers tentative? Always adding, if it be your will, at the end. And what happens if I pray for the wrong thing? Can prayer do harm? Does prayer ever change God's mind? Can it change God's plans, His decree? If my prayers can't change what God has already ordained, what He's already ordained will happen, then why does it matter whether I pray or not? It's going to be the same either way, right? So maybe you've wrestled with those sort of questions. They're perplexing questions. But the good news is that we're not alone in prayer. We have help in this area. We have the help of the Holy Spirit, which is great help indeed. And we have the help of Scripture. It's what Romans 8, 26 and 27 is all about. The Spirit helps believers by entering our plight as we cope with our existence in a sinful world, a fallen world. He helps us by articulating our suffering and our needs, expressing them, articulating them to God the Father. The Spirit does this in a more effective way than we're able to do in our own prayers. So the Spirit's prayers are more effective than ours. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, wordless groanings. Now this verse begins with the word likewise. I jumped right into the middle of this passage here. Some translations say, in the same way. This points us back to the previous verses, the previous paragraph. And in those previous verses, Paul talks about how believers are groaning inwardly and hoping and eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back and renew His creation and give us our new bodies. We're waiting for this day with anticipation and perseverance, Paul says, as we groan. The adverb likewise in verse 27 describes the similarity between our waiting, our groaning as we wait, and the Spirit's action, who also we're going to find out is groaning. The comparison then is between really our groaning and the Spirit's groaning. We don't groan alone. Both believers and the Spirit, think about this, think about what's going on here. Both believers and the Holy Spirit are involved in the groaning that all creation has been experiencing since Adam's sin in the garden in Genesis 3. The Spirit allows our suffering, our groaning, to touch Him. 
See, God, our God is not a God who remains aloof, at a distance, aloof from our suffering. He doesn't observe our pain, our difficulties from far away, from a distance. No, He enters into them. And we see this especially in the person of Jesus Christ, don't we? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entered our sinful world and He suffered as one of us. He let death touch Him even. But it's not just the second person of the Trinity of the Trinity who enters into our groaning world. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes alongside our groaning. The Spirit enters into the plight that we, as believers, and the rest of creation experience. To use Paul's word in verse 26, the Spirit helps us. He helps you in your weaknesses. He helps you in the midst of your trials, your tribulations, your troubles. That word help is an important word. The story of Martha and Mary at the end of Luke 10 helped to illustrate what that word really means and all that comes with it. Martha, who had invited Jesus into her home, became anxious and troubled about many things, it says, related to showing Jesus hospitality. So she asked Jesus to urge her sister, Mary, to stop sitting at Jesus' feet and being lazy and instead help her. Lord, Martha says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Martha wanted someone to labor alongside her, beside her, next to her, to help relieve her stress and to lighten her load. And so she uses that word. And this is precisely the role that Paul gives the Spirit here in Romans 8. He comes alongside us, he comes next to us, and he bears our burden, he shoulders the weight so that we don't have to do it alone. And Paul says that the Spirit gives us a specific type of help in our difficulties. Since we don't know what to pray for, because of our limitations, because of our inherent weaknesses, the Spirit enters into our predicament and intercedes on our behalf with God the Father. Now, by the way, it's not a sin when you don't know how to pray as you ought, as you should be praying, as you need to be praying. Not knowing what to pray for is oftentimes just the result of not being God and not knowing all of God's thoughts, which is normal. That that would have been normal without sin. We're not God. We're not infinite. We don't know all His thoughts. Paul says in Romans 11.34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And the correct answer in this, to that rhetorical question is no one. No one knows God's mind. No one can be his counselor and, and give him advice that he doesn't already know. And yet, and yet God calls us to pray. In a sense to be his counselor according to his will. He invites us into his presence 
to give him counsel, counsel about what we think he should do, about what we think should happen in the world. And he even listens to us. And he acts just as he listened to Abraham and Moses and the prophets and then acted. So you can see the tension there between our limited knowledge as creatures and our duty to talk to God boldly, confidently about our situation and about what we think God should do in the world and in our lives. The tension feels irreconcilable. Like, how do you actually get those two things to come together? It feels more like an impossibility than like tension. But this is where the Spirit comes in. The Spirit enters into our impossible plight and He prays to God the Father on our behalf with wordless groanings. Groanings that cannot be uttered. This is the third time that Paul uses the, this word groaning in Romans 8. Up in verses, if you have your Bibles open to Romans 8, you can look up in verses 22 and 23. And he talks about the groaning of creation and the groaning of believers. So there's really three different uh, groaners. Uh, there's creation, there's believers, and then there's the Spirit. So up in the previous paragraph, starting in verse 22, creation groans and labors with birth pangs. And then believers groan within ourselves, Paul says, as we eagerly wait for Jesus to come back and give us our new bodies that will never experience pain or disappointment or heartache or hurt or sorrow, suffering of any kind ever again. But until that glorious day, we groan. Creation groans. And our groanings can't be understood, at least not by us, because they're wordless. They can't be uttered. Our groanings are the result of existing in a body and in a world that is subject to frustration and futility because of our sin, because of Adam's sin and then our sins that we pile on. Astonishingly, the Spirit enters into this futility, into our frustrating situation, to help us, to assist us. The Spirit joins you in your groaning to help you in all the various uh, ways that you groan and for all the various reasons that you groan. He comes alongside your groaning and groans with you, with groanings of his own. And his groanings are prayers, effectual prayers to God the Father on your behalf, for you, specifically for you. That's what Paul means when he says the Spirit makes intercession for us, for the saints, with groanings. The Spirit is your advocate with the Father. Most of us are used to thinking of Jesus as an intercessor and an advocate with the Father. He is also. But we find out it's both the Spirit and the Son. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit who are praying for us, making intercession for us. 
And the Spirit does it by groaning in us and with us, alongside us, for us. He's your advocate. The Spirit prays specifically for you. He asks the Father to help you as you go along in a world in which you are surrounded constantly by the effects of human rebellion against God. And this is the best part, though. The Father always hears and answers the groaning prayers of the Holy Spirit on your behalf. Can you imagine otherwise? Is it even conceivable that the Father would not answer the Spirit's prayers for you? Every one of them exactly how the Spirit prays them. Now let's take a step back and return to the problem that the passage addresses. Paul's answering two questions for us. The first question is, why is prayer a problem? We know that prayer is a problem. That's obvious, self-evident. But why is prayer a problem? And the second question is, what's to be done about this problem? So why is prayer such a problem? Why do we find it so difficult and perplexing? And number two, what's to be done about it? What's the solution to the problem? It may not be the solution that we would come up with on our own. So let's take the first question first. Why is prayer a problem? Paul answers in verse 26. We've already gone over it briefly. It's because of our weakness. And when Paul speaks of our weakness, it's important to realize again that he's not speaking about sin. Weakness is not automatically, necessarily sinful. Now you can have sinful weaknesses, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. It's true that we're sinners and that we often sin and that sin is itself a barrier to our communication with God. There's no doubt about that. In fact, David says of his prayer life, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So the Lord, he knew the Lord's not going to listen to my prayers if I'm cherishing, if I'm nurturing, harboring sin in my heart. Isaiah told the Israelites, your iniquities have separated you from your God. But that's not what Paul is speaking of here. At least not immediately, directly. The problem Paul is concerned with is simply human frailty. And more specifically, human frailty in a sinful world. A creation that is under the curse of sin. You can think of it this way. Paul also talks about sort of the weakness of creation. He doesn't use that word for creation. But he talks about creation itself groaning. And creation, the groaning creation isn't sinful. It's not groaning because it's sinful. 
the futility that it's under is not because of its sin, it's because of our sin. In the same way, sometimes the futility that we experience is not necessarily because directly uh, because of our sin. It's just because of our weakness and in our situation. It's the weakness that comes from being a finite creature. And the weakness that Paul has in mind here, he actually tells us in verse 26, it's the weakness of ignorance. A lack of understanding. A lack of knowing God's will. It's expressed in the next sentence, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. And now, when Paul says that we ought to know, he's not saying that we're in sin if we don't know. It's not a moral ought here. He's just emphasizing that to pray for the right things, we need to know what to pray for. The things that we need to pray for, that we ought to pray for, We don't always know what they are. So he's not addressing the problem of how to pray. He's addressing the problem of what to pray. We don't know what we should ask God for. We don't know what we should bring to God in prayer. What is God's will for this situation or that situation? In our human limitations and weaknesses, we simply don't know sometimes, and therefore we don't know how to pray. So that's the problem. And notice that when Paul writes the word weakness, he adds the word our before it. Not your weakness, but our weakness. He's including himself. In other words, the weakness that makes prayer difficult is not something that only new and immature Christians have. have. It's part of our common human condition. Even great saints, like the Apostle Paul, deal with this difficulty. And we know this is true because Paul pleaded with Jesus three times about that messenger from Satan, which Paul calls the thorn in his flesh. Three times Paul asked Jesus to take it away. But it turned out that Paul was praying, in a sense, in ignorance. It wasn't sinful prayers or inappropriate prayers, but they were prayers of ignorance. He didn't know what Jesus' will was on the matter. And he he found out, how did he find out the will of God, Jesus? He, He did it by praying, by stumbling through prayer until he figured it out. He didn't realize until later that Jesus gave him this thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited and to show Paul that the grace of Jesus is sufficient for Paul and the power of Jesus is made perfect in what? In Paul's weakness. There's that word again, weakness. That's how Christ and His Spirit work. Jesus and the Holy Spirit make their perfect power known in us, manifest in us, in our weakness. And this is true of the weakness that we bring to prayer as well. You come to prayer weak. You come to prayer ignorant of much of God's will. You know what you want. Paul knew what he wanted, but you don't know always what Jesus wants. We're all weak groaners. 
there's a sense in, where, in which that's where God wants you. It's, spe- it's why we, especially why we don't need to see this as sinful. It's, it's where God wants you. It's not bad to show up to prayer full of weakness. It's better, in fact, than showing up to prayer full of strength. It's better to show up to prayer speechless and ignorant with nothing but your groanings than to show up full of words and knowledge. When you're weak in prayer, you're in a place where God can make His power known in your weakness. So when you're weak in prayer, don't not pray. Don't not pray because you don't know what to pray for. That's when you should pray in the Spirit. Just, just stay there and groan a while. That's all you got. And remember, in that moment, the grace of Jesus is sufficient for you. And the power of Jesus is made perfect in that weakness. The bigger the weakness, the more the power of Jesus. And the reason you can do this, the reason you can put this into practice with confidence is that the Spirit always helps you in that weakness. He always groans with you and His groanings aren't weak. His groanings aren't ignorant. You're weak, but the Holy Spirit is all-powerful and He helps. And that word helps is a, is a long Greek word That means to come alongside someone to help them bear their burden, as we looked at in the story of Martha and Mary. Martha wanted Mary to get up and help her bear the heavy load of hospitality. Here in Romans 8, Paul says that the Spirit helps us by bearing our burdens. That's implied in this word. The bearing of our burdens and our weakness. Paul pictures our ignorance of what to pray for as a heavy load. So so think of that that ignorance as a weight on your shoulders. And sometimes that's how it feels, isn't it? It's a heavy weight. We're struggling along under the burden of not knowing what the content of our prayers should be. And oftentimes this weight drives us to prayerlessness. But... For the believer, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and He helps us shoulder the load in our weakness. He identifies with us and He labors with us in our weakness. And He pleads our case to the Father even when we don't know what our case is or should be. So we don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit does. And so He prays for us. And verse 27 assures us that the Spirit's prayers are always answered. Now he who searches the hearts, that's God the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That's the mind of the Holy Spirit. Because he, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now this this verse is packed full of treasures. It's a little bit hard to understand just on, on one reading. The one who searches hearts in the Old Testament is God the Father. He searches all hearts and understands every plan 
and every thought as I read from Second Chronicles 29, David's words to Solomon before our confession of sin. And there's a half a dozen to a dozen scriptures like that in the Old Testament about God, the Father, knowing our hearts, searching our hearts and our plans. In verse 27, Paul is saying that the Father, you know, the one who searches hearts, you know Him, it's God the Father, He knows what the mind of the Holy Spirit is. Now what does that mean? What's what's the connection here? How do these two thoughts go together? What does the fact that God searches our hearts have to do with the fact that God knows the mind of the Holy Spirit? Those seem like two truths that are unrelated. Well, the key to figuring out what Paul is saying here is remembering Paul's teaching about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in Romans 8, but also in Galatians 4, Paul has said that the Holy Spirit lives in the hearts of believers and bears witness to our spirits that we are God's children. So the point that Paul's making in verse 27 is that the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. He doesn't say it explicitly, but that's the implication. The Holy Spirit, that's, he's, he's living there in your hearts. Therefore, when the Father inspects the heart of a believer, He's inspecting the home of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that your heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? Well, it is. So when the Father searches your heart, He sees the Spirit there. And He knows what's on the Spirit's mind. Which means He knows the content of the Spirit's prayer. The the Spirit's mind and the Spirit's intercession are synonymous in this verse. So how does the Father know what's on the Spirit's mind? How does the Father know what the Holy Spirit's prayers are going to be even before He praise them even before He groans them on your behalf? The answer is at the end of verse 27. It's because the Spirit always prays for the saints according to what? According to God. Literally, according to God's will. That's what we would expect since the Spirit is God. And yet, notice that this is not an impersonal transaction here. Notice how personal all of this is for Paul. This is not just dry, philosophical doctrine of God stuff here. No, this is personal. The Spirit lives in your heart and prays for you to the Father from your heart. His prayers are going up to the Father from His dwelling place in your heart. The Father searches your heart and sees the Spirit there and hears the Spirit's prayers on your behalf from there. The Father knows what's on the Spirit's mind and what the Spirit prays for and what He's going to pray for concerning you before He even prays it. Why? Because the Spirit never fails to pray in accordance with God's will. In summary, then, you have a prayer warrior living in your heart. The Holy Spirit who groans with you and helps you in your weakness and always prays on your behalf God's will. But none of this is meant to suggest that we do nothing, that, that you just sit back and let the Spirit do the work. 
you have something to do in prayer. You have a responsibility to pray. You have a responsibility in prayer which is made quite clear in this text by the word helps. The Apostle says that the Spirit helps. He assists in our weakness. That assumes that we're, we're there too. And this raises the question, if you're not praying, what does the Spirit's help look like? Will the Spirit help those who are not groaning and hoping and waiting and praying in weakness? Paul says that the Spirit helps those who are weak, and the idea is that the Spirit helps those who are weak and know it, who are weak and acknowledge it, because even the most prideful man is weak. But those who don't groan and pray are strong in their own eyes. They don't see themselves as weak. They see themselves as self-sufficient and strong. That, that's just the automatic conclusion to prayerlessness. If you, when you don't pray, it's because you are self-sufficient and strong in your own eyes. God's grace and power come to those who are weak. So if you're too strong to groan and pray, does God's Spirit see a need to help you? Does He see a need to come alongside and groan and pray on your behalf? Now if you're not seeing Romans 8, 26 and 27 play out in your life, if this is just a mystery or gibberish, and you really don't see any point of contact between what Paul is saying here and what actually happens in your life. You might search your own heart. Imitate God, the searcher of your heart, and search your own heart to see whether your sufficiency is coming from yourself or from God's grace. Are you relying on God's power or on yours? Do you recognize the depths of your weakness? Are you dependent on God in life and in prayer? Have you embraced your groaning? Or are you still trying to overcome it by certain techniques or the newest idea on the internet or by planning your life a certain way? Do you know what Paul is talking about when he says in verse 23 that those who have the Spirit groan within themselves. Paul knew the temptation to not want to embrace the groaning and the weakness. And so Jesus, because he loved Paul, kept that thorn poking him in his side. Do you know the groaning that Paul's talking about? The groaning in yourself, as he puts it. Romans 8, 26 and 27 constitute something of a, of a primer on prayer for Christians. And I'll, cl- I'll conclude with four pretty brief applications that, we can, that, that spring from this text. Number one, we're supposed to pray. Everything that Paul is saying here, the promises, the good news, the help is assuming that we're praying. That we're praying, as Paul puts it, in the Spirit. That we are praying, as Paul puts it, 
continually. And so we have to ask whether the promises here, the benefits that God promises are for prayerless people. So if you're prayerless, can you just count on the Spirit to do all this? I don't think so. I think that's why James says that you don't have because you do not ask. Things don't happen because you're not praying. So the key is not praying for the right things. That's important too. But that's, I would say, secondary to just praying and groaning in the Spirit, in the presence of God, especially when you don't know what to pray for. Because that's when the Spirit comes alongside and groans and does His work, His praying, His groaning on your behalf. And we want those prayers. Yeah, maybe your prayers aren't all that great. I know mine are not always all that great. But when we pray in weakness... We get the Spirit praying for us as well. So regardless of the problems we may have with prayer, and all the saints have been perplexed by prayer at times throughout the ages, we are nevertheless supposed to pray. You must pray. The Word of God commands it. Paul says, pray continually. And anything God tells you to do is for your good, even if you don't understand Why? And if we fail to do it, we're the poorer for it. Prayer is one of the great spiritual disciplines. Number two, don't expect expect prayer to be easy. That's another assumption that goes all the way through this text. And why should it be? Why should prayer be easy? Nothing else in the Christian life is easy. Really, nothing that's worth your time is easy. Why should prayer be any different? The Christian life is a struggle. It's a fight. And we shouldn't expect simple or quick fix solutions. Our contemporary American culture has conditioned us to want easy cure-alls. We want a panacea for every problem. In the area of our sanctification, our growth in Christ, we expect immediate victories, either by a formula, a 12-step process, or a spiritual experience that's going to guarantee that growth, that sanctification that we want. And so we listen to the latest spiritual guru whether they're Christians or not, or we buy the latest books. But God doesn't work that way. We're called to a battle, a war. And our perseverance in that struggle is itself a victory. That's the last word in verse 25, is perseverance. Perseverance itself is a victory, even if the results are not visible and spectacular and measurable, quantifiable. And the Holy Spirit will help us bear our burden. And this principle applies to prayer as much as it applies to anything else in the Christian life. You don't have to feel good about praying, though you will in many cases. You don't even have to see the results of your prayers, though you often will. What's important is that you keep on keeping on 
in the Spirit, in prayer. One poem puts it this way. We are not here to play, to dream, to drift. We have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle. Face it, tis God's gift. So it's going to be hard. Embrace that. Number three, realize what you're doing when you pray. Although the the discipline of prayer is itself a struggle, and more often than not, we don't know what to pray for, we should always know what we're doing and what's going on when we do pray. When we do pray in faith, in the Spirit, in weakness. We're addressing ourselves to the great sovereign God who's in control of the whole universe every second of every day. And we're presenting our petitions and supplications and thanksgivings to Him, to that God. He's hearing these prayers and responding to them consistently, perfectly, and wisely out of his own infinite wisdom and inexhaustible, uh, inexhaustible abundance. So, does prayer ever change what God has ordained? Does prayer ever change what God has decreed will happen from before the foundations of the world? Does, does it ever change what he's ordained? Well, of course not. And no one in his right mind, would want it otherwise. If God's plan is perfect, and it is, then getting him to change his mind on his plan, his decree, would be to get him and his plan to become imperfect. Less than perfectly wise. And if that ever happened, the universe would fall into disorder. Any thinking person wants God always to be completely sovereign, completely running everything according to His will alone. According to His perfect will, not yours, not mine. That's what anyone in his right mind would want. But, but there's a parallel question that I'll ask. Does prayer change things? And the answer to that question is yes, absolutely, all the time. Because God not only ordains the ends, He not only predetermines, decrees, ordains the ends, He also ordains the means. And He has made prayer to be a means to His ends. A means that we get to participate in. And so we can say secondarily that that prayer causes things to happen. And I said secondarily, God causes everything to happen. So everything that happens is primarily because God decreed it. But secondarily, within God's, under God's sovereign umbrella, we secondarily cause things to happen in prayer because God has ordained it that way. He's chosen it to be that way. He has promised us, in fact, that prayer is effective in making things happen and changing things. And he keeps his promises. So notice the difference between those two questions. Does prayer ever change what God has ordained? No. 
Never. It does not. Everything God has ordained will happen exactly as He has ordained it. But does, God, but does prayer change things? And yes, we have to answer yes to that because God has ordained that it should be so. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. There's a cause and effect here. When you ask and seek and knock, things happen as a result. There's a cause and effect. For everyone who asks, uh, who, uh, who asks receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. James puts it this way. You do not have, why? Because you do not ask God. He didn't say you do not have because God ordained it so that you would not have. Now that's true in a sense. Of course it's true because God ordains everything. But he's going to the level down to the secondary causes. and He's saying the more important reason that you need to think about is that you don't have because you're not asking. You're not in God's will. You're not praying for the things that God wants you to be praying for. And so he's not giving them to you. Now all of this, this complex thing that we're thinking about here is all ordained by God. From the top to the bottom, everything in the middle, all the secondary causes are all ordained by God. But they're real. And they're personal. And the Bible speaks of them as realities that we are to embrace and to believe and act upon. In the next chapter of James, in James 5, he says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And remember too, since we're talking about change and what prayer prayer changes, oftentimes the chief thing that happens in prayer is, is that we are changed. That's what happened to Paul in that prayer for removing the thorn in his side. He didn't change any, his, his circumstances. Nothing happened with that thorn. It stayed right there where, where Jesus wanted it. But it changed Paul. And when James says here that the prayer of a righteous man is effective in power, the, the other side of that coin is that the prayers of unrighteous people are not effective and not Power. They're powerless and ineffective. And this goes back to the discussion about whether the Spirit actually groans alongside and prays for those who are prayerless, who, act, who don't spend time in the Spirit in prayer. I think the reason that the prayers of an unrighteous man are powerless and ineffective are primarily because the Spirit's not there alongside him groaning and praying and making up the difference. Because the difference between our prayers and, and the prayers of, of an unrighteous person in the sense of knowing God's will are sometimes not all that different. You know, we pray for what we want, what we think you know, would benefit us, and it's not always God's will. The difference, though, is that the believer has the Spirit making up the difference, praying alongside so that the prayers are ultimately effective. Even the prayers that are not in accordance with God's will, like Paul's prayer, are effective and powerful in changing things, even if it's only yourself, because the Spirit's there. Spirit, it's the presence of the Spirit that makes the difference. Number four, and finally, 
Be encouraged by these truths in verses 26 and 27. It's true we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know God's will much of the time. But the Holy Spirit does, and the Holy Spirit has been given to us by God the Father to assist us precisely in this area. One, com- one commentator uh, compared learning to pray to a man learning to, pl- uh, learning to pray to a man learning to play the violin. At first, he's not very good, but he gets the schedule of the classical music broadcasts in his area. He buys violin parts to to the music that he knows that will be played. And then he tunes into the radio each afternoon and plays along to the best of his ability with his violin, trying to match the notes. Now his mistakes, which are many, especially at first, they don't change what's coming over the radio. The concertos and the symphonies continue to roll on in perfect harmony and tempo. But the struggling violinist changes. He gets better week by week, night after night, year by year. And time, the time eventually comes when he can play along with the orchestra broadcasts pretty well. Prayer is something like that. There are plenty of mistakes, mistaken notes and groans, but there's also progress and joy and encouragement along the way since God is continuing to conduct the perfect heavenly symphony. And the Holy Spirit is continuing to prepare you for the day when you'll be able to take your place in the divine orchestra. That's an illustration of how prayer changes us, forms us in accordance to the will of God. In the meantime, we can know that the Holy Spirit, like a wise and faithful teacher is by our side. He's right next to us. In fact, he's in us. He's groaning with us and within us and praying for us according to God's will. Let's pray and give thanks for this truth. Father, we thank you for the promise of your spirit's presence with us when we pray. Make us men and women and boys and girls of prayer so that we can benefit from these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.